the motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out. Your favorite labor podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going. If you're not in the Discord already, hop in there. It's a great place where you can find all kinds of cool things, including a reading group. Uh, If you are a patron and you would like stickers, you can message us on Patreon and we will get them to you as soon as we can. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. Or you can just have a, a, a bus full of children scream, listen to work stoppage, a joke that will not make sense now, but if you listen for a very long time, will make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I also, John, you know, do you know what's, what's actually in the open? No, I do not. It's the uh, Ron Perlman. Oh, well, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> ideal. I mean, so we did. We just heard from Hellboy himself threatening to do physical damage to uh, what's his name, Bob Iger, and all of the various other CEOs. And frankly, uh, I always thought uh, Hellboy was kind of cheesy, but uh, this is badass. I love this. Nailed it. I mean, frankly, I think you know he's just giving people good advice about karma. I think he's he's trying to help Bob Iger from my perspective. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) but. But, you know, some people who are also helping out right now are the American counterparts of the workers in ILWU Canada who continue their strike against the West Coast ports in Canada uh, for an, uh, into their second week, which has shut down the busiest port in Canada because the shipping companies in Canada continue to refuse to negotiate in good faith with the ILWU because they thought, hey, you know, our whole thing is is shipping, right? We 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 know logistics. We can route cargo containers here and there. Well, we got a brilliant idea. So these guys, yeah, they've shut down our ports in Canada, but you know, it's next to Canada, America, and their ports Greenland. are not shut down. So we'll just reroute <laughs> these. Brilliant plan. Problem with that plan. <laughs> is that those ports are also unionized by the ILWU. Damn. And, and they have been explicit since the get-go. They're like, yeah, we're not, we're very well, obviously not yeah. going to handle this truck cargo. Do you, do you know us? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, any other, like, even like the, the like, even the ILA is not going to handle, like, if the ILA Canada or whatever got their, like, Nova Scotian port struck, they're not going to handle stuff in New York. So thinking that a much more militant union is going to do that is just ridiculous. Like, <laughs> 
They've attempted to reroute cargo from Vancouver to Seattle. That didn't work. They've tried to reroute it to, I think, San Francisco, which also hasn't worked. Uh, they, so, yeah, the employers continue to not uh, really understand what a strike or solidarity is or how those things work. Uh, but they're getting a really good demonstration from ILWU workers up and down the West Coast. And so, you know, uh, we've already seen some movement. They've specifically come back and said that they are now willing to bargain on key issues, such as keeping uh, maintenance work on dock equipment within the union rather than subcontracting it, because that's one of the big, uh, bigger sticking points is the continued attempts to subcontract out work to non-union workers. While, you know, automation has already massively slashed the number of longshore jobs, uh, you know, just around the world, and yet continuously trying to steal work from these unionized uh, employees. But they've already basically said, look, we'll, we'll, we'll negotiate on that. Please stop striking. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't imagine that this strike is probably going to continue that long because I think that the ILWU Canada folks have already uh, made their point pretty strong. They also <laughs> are really good at social media. Their yes. posts mm-hmm. have been really great. And also they've been doing some big rallies. It's been really impressive. Yeah, uh, so- but what's not impressive is the uh, cleanup at in East Palestine around the you know derailed train and the uh, the what, what was it the uh, chlorine um, vinyl chloride vinyl chloride right right well uh, I mean I guess they said that it was fine right and everybody was uh, totally good to come back. Uh, there was all sorts of different news reports about it for months, um, and uh, now they there have been uh, teams of scientists from Carnegie Mellon and Texas A and M uh, who used a mobile mess spectrometer to test basically if there were more harmful chemicals, and they found that there have been in the weeks after in the months even after this chemical fire. Um, they found not only the presence of vinyl chloride, which was known about, but also high levels of uh, acrolein, I believe. Acrolein, six times six times higher than safe levels. Uh, even three weeks after the disaster, uh, research indicates that long-term exposure to high levels of acrolein can lead to damage to the lungs and uh, na- nasal tumors. Uh, other tests uh, at the time also detected elevated levels of da- dangerous ke- chemicals like benzene and but. Um, I'm not butyl- good with these these uh, but- chemical names. Butyl acrylate. Butyl acrylate. And also, I don't think that we reported it when it came out, but uh, they didn't have to set that fucking train on fire. Correct. Uh, I I I didn't say that on the show. I don't think, but before uh, I was I was like, what? What? They don't need to set it on fire. That's a, that's a sh- them trying to get this thing moving faster. Turns out I was right. Should have followed my gut. <laughs> yeah, and that was con- as much as confirmed by the CEO of a company that owned a bunch of the vinyl chloride that was on those cargo. Um, uh, parts of the train and cargo cars. And he even said, like, we were monitoring the situation the whole time and the temperature and pressure regulators on the cars were functioning as intended and preventing any kind of disastrous issue. So, yeah, it's it's been completely uh, proven that it was just a business decision. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, as we have seen countless times throughout this country's, well, I, at least back to the 70s when the EPA was created, 
we have had the EPA come in and do again what what you would think if you're looking at this on the surface level is the opposite of their job. Uh, covering up for a company like Norfolk Southern by coming in and saying, hey, hold on, uh, we're hearing all this speculation that a company that derailed a train full of dangerous chemicals and then let those chemicals on fire and then swiftly hushed everything up, that that might be dangerous and concerning. Well, we're here to tell you there's not enough information to tell you if it should be concerning, so you should not be concerned. <laughs> It, and it's just, it's always the most bureaucratic way of going about it where later they can come back and say, oh, we never said it was safe. We just said we didn't know if it was dangerous. <laughs> so, like, it's it's just really frustrating because, like, the EPA, you know, should have been the first team out there like, yeah, this is really fucked up. All of these chemicals are way too high level and should have been directing this, but instead they've largely just been covering for Norfolk Southern and continuing to throw out things like the inconclusive while we continue to have reports of East Palestine residents who have continued to suffer from like various medical problems since the crash. And I think I really, we really just wanted to emphasize this where it's like, I think a lot of people think, you know, that like, if it really was that bad, there would be more media coverage on it. And like, their thing is, is like they can cover it, but if they cover it with one story that nobody reads instead of wall to wall TV coverage day in, day out, then it's going to get missed in all the big, you know, hullabaloo of everything else that's going on constantly every day. And so like, I don't like just to, to really emphasize, like the, the government basically abandoned the people of East Palestine and, and it's, and no one has really been following up with them. And so like, it's really important that, you know, we have people like Max Alvarez at the real news network, who's continued to talk with folks in East Palestine about what they're going through. Uh, because otherwise the media is happy to just let this story disappear. Yeah. Well, uh, as kind of an opposite, when we talk about how unions are one of the only things that protect, you know, people, uh, we can actually move to our next story uh, and how the Starbucks union is not abandoning any of the other stores by, and we mentioned this a little bit last week, just for a moment, about their nationwide bus tour. And so in order to continue to organize nationwide, they have basically been driving all across the country uh, starting on July 10th to basically announce that they are still organizing with their kind of the union is calling program, uh, sending organizers to cities across the country and demand that Starbucks bargain for a fair contract finally. Uh, the union hired two buses to send organizers to support workers at stores in 14 cities, starting in Minneapolis. The tour will stop in Atlanta, Chicago, Knoxville, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Eugene, Portland, and Seattle. At each stop, the workers will hold rallies, press events, organizing events, and generally promote and fight Starbucks uh, and for the workers to get this giant corporation to finally fucking start bargaining. Yeah, and actually, I, I was I was watching today from the the social media from Starbucks Workers United because the bus tour show arrived in in Louisville today, which of course we've covered a lot on the show because there's been a lot of organizing in Louisville over the last couple of years, and they to time it with the co the bus arriving, they launched a joint campaign, not only shutting down several Starbucks locations to demand that, you know, corporate come to the table and bargain in good faith, but also they did, uh, 
protests and rallies in concert with uh, Sonergo's, the other coffee chain in Louisville. Of course, there's also Heine Brothers, which unionized, um, where they, Sonergo's, has been stalling at the bargaining table with their union. So Starbucks Workers United worked together with their union to pool their efforts and pool the publicity and shut down 10 stores today in Louisville. So like this tour is, is, is not just, you know, the bus shows up and we have a nice press event, but like they're actually being directly involved in these organizing activities, which I think is, is super cool. Yeah, it really rocks. We have a statement here from Michelle uh, Eisen, who said, quote, if Starbucks won't come to the table, then we're going to come to them. It's time the company learns that union busting is unacceptable and our allies and customers are not going to accept it, end quote. The union is also planning its next steps in pressuring the company, asking supportive customers to sign up to volunteer picket non-union stores on August 7th. So this is a great opportunity for all of our listeners as part of their campaign to support workers at stores that have not unionized due to company union busting. Starbucks Workers United continues to innovate and show that even in the face of corporate malfeasance, workers can still make a very powerful difference. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. It's really great to see that kind of outreach from Starbucks Workers United and that kind of cross-union solidarity that they're so uh, seemingly adept at building uh, right out of the gate, which has been uh, absolutely fabulous. And as long as we're talking about some of our ongoing stories, let's talk about the Writers Guild of America. Normally we hear complaints about AI from the actors, but this time the writers have turned around and given us uh, some food for thought. So... um, The attempts to use AI content creation as a form of labor discipline took yet another step this week when G.O. Media, parent company of The Onion and The A.V. Club, began publishing algorithmically generated quote-unquote articles. The WGA immediately condemned the move, calling out the unpublishable content of the articles, and called on the company to stop abusing its writers, saying in a statement, uh, quote, The posted articles, called tests by Geo Management, were riddled with errors and even an ethnic slur. Management's ill-considered decision to use AI after both unions openly and preemptively pleaded against it garnered deservedly negative media coverage everywhere. End quote. The workers have called on readers not to give companies ad traffic by clicking them. And I'm sure even if you did click them, you probably wouldn't want to read it because it is straight up trash. (laughs) Well, yeah, because, like, that's one of the things, like, I, I get this move, like, as part of the broader, you know, labor discipline threat strategy of, like, even though we know the AI bullshit doesn't actually work, we're going to act like it does in order to scare workers and to try and, and, and force them into concessions at the at the bargaining table. But, like, I don't know, you ever been on, like, <laughs> you're checking the weather, on the internet, like weather.com, weather underground, weather. Well, not so much duck up, but the other ones, the actual companies you ever scroll down and see the bizarre ads that they have at the bottom of those. That's where you see a lot of the one weird trick sort of ad because they're like, this is a website that the people who watch CNN at the airport will go to because they're just checking the weather. And so they put the most nonsense, clearly like fake articles that have already always honestly seem like they were written by AI because they don't, they're just, they're just, it's just scams. It's, it's what every single thing is. But so now Geo is benefits like, benefits of apple cider vinegar. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. It's always that bizarre shit. And now Geo is like, you know what we need? We need more of that. 
Mm-hmm. You know what? The <laughs> ones that really upset me are like they put like body horror in the, in yes. the image images. I hate those. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, there should be an app that just removes all the disturbing pictures. Not necessarily <laughs> like, you know, violence or adult content, just those images that are clickbaity and meant to make you go, what the fuck is that? Yeah, the, the <laughs> ones that are like, look at these horrible warts on somebody's toe or yeah, something. Yeah, let's not yeah, do that anymore. Yeah, but anyways, <laughs> uh, you know, but who actually could help you if you had one of those bizarre medical conditions? Oh, it's healthcare workers. That's true. Uh, this is an effortless segue, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> so our last little quick hit here. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the uh, escalation of the fight against the anti-worker government of South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol that was being planned by the KCTU, the largest and most progressive of the labor federations in South Korea, and that that was going to be a multiple-week process uh, of, of steady escalation involving more and more different unions. And so that's been rolling out over the last couple of weeks. And that added to it a strike by healthcare workers around the country starting on Thursday, July 13th, where the 45,000 members of the Korean Health and Medical Workers Union, who are affiliated with the KCTU, uh, struck nationwide for the first time in nearly 20 years. And they are fighting, you know, in addition to the broader political struggle by the entire working class in South Korea to get rid of the extreme anti-worker government of Yoon Suk-yeol. They're also fighting for many of the same specific conditions that, you know, we hear so much from healthcare workers in the capitalist world. Uh, they are fighting for the biggest thing they're fighting for. I'll, yeah, I'll, you know, one guess for any listener, what are the nurses asking for? Hey, you're right. It's safe staffing. Oh my <laughs> staffing God. ratios every time. Yeah. Uh, they, they've specifically demanded that the government agree to the regulation of a maximum uh, staffing ratio of five patients per nurse. Uh, they say that currently they can uh, sometimes have t- twice that in their current load or even more, which is just insufficient. You can't give somebody enough care, you know, when they're in the fucking hospital, if you have that many. Um They've also demanded additional funding from the government for this, the country's healthcare system, specifically in order to hire additional doctors. Because right now, their system is 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 basically forcing a lot of nurses to do doctors' work at lower pay in order to you know just continue to add to what they can squeeze out of them. I would just wanted to quick put in in perspective what a staffing ratio like the five one the five stash, staffing ratio that they're demanding that means that they get about twelve minutes per hour per person that isn't just them talking you know some some people require a little bit more care and do actually need to talk for longer but that's also the paperwork that's also consulting everything finding the medications that's that's like literally every bit of care and that they're they're trying to make sure that they have at least twelve minutes an hour per person yeah That's well and it's everything else ask. it's also everything else too it's fucking catheters and bedpans and ivs and and you know yeah m- delivering medication on time and reminding people of appointments and like there's a lot that goes into that shit yeah absolutely they they've they've also demanded the government just broader provide more funding to the public health system and increased funding for covid treatment facilities so uh as with we see with 
pretty much every healthcare strike I think that we've covered. They left a skeleton crew of, of workers to cover the emergency department. So that was not shut down and anything for like life-saving surgeries. There was a crew left on to handle those. And then the remainder of the 45,000 member union uh, were out on the picket lines with the rest of the striking workers. Um, and they called out both the employers and the government for colluding to derail and delay bargaining sessions between the healthcare union and, uh, you know, all parties, uh, back in May in response, the government in classic, uh, this government form, (laughs) they accused the workers of holding the state hostage to their negotiations saying, quote, uh, this is a quote from the country's healthcare minister or health minister, Cho Kyu Hong, who said, quote, It is not fair for a labor union to force the government to announce policy in time for a KCTU strike, end quote. Oh, is it not fair? Is it not fair when someone besides you wins? Oh, are you going to flip the table over and knock all the little Monopoly pieces on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like... It's also just them saying, we're not willing to put this on enough of a priority to get it handled. I mean, they they are just like you you shouldn't force us to actually make people's lives better why you shouldn't be able to do that like what kind of obviously i mean we know what kind of government does that yeah well it's the, it's the end it's the end logical end point of the whole strikes are okay as long as they don't disrupt the economy logic because yeah, strikes, what, strikes are okay as long as they don't do anything <laughs> right no exactly <laughs> because that's that's fundamentally what they want because they and, and i mean well, you know we go back hundreds of years it, the capitalists have cried extortion about strikes since the very first strike so like this is not in any way new um and so, but just to, to put a quick wrap on this story, uh, the, the KHMU struck for two days. They were intentionally not planning to, you know, go out on a very long extended strike. Of course, we know how difficult it is for healthcare workers to do that, especially in capitalist healthcare systems that are already overstressed. Uh, and so, but they did emphasize in a statement on their return to work that the whole point of the strike was to impress on the bosses that like their issues that the, the workers are fighting for are real. And that if the bosses don't change how they've been negotiating and start taking them seriously, they'll go right back out on the picket lines again. So yeah, as always, we love all to see the energy and discipline from the South Korean labor movement. Yeah. All power Hell and yeah. solidarity to these workers. And uh, John, you actually alluded to what our next article is about earlier when you were talking about uh, AI. You said something about actors. Yeah, the actors have been bringing up AI, and I guess that was kind of giving away, that was kind of uh, handing you the lead, in fact, which is that the actors are on strike now. 160,000 actors have joined the Writers Guild on strike, and Hollywood is more or less shut down from tip to tail. So, ever since the writers' strike began back in May, the possibility that all three of the major creative unions in the film and TV industry could be on strike at the same time was in the air, but the Directors Guild acted like a bunch of weenies and struck a really quick (laughs) deal. So (laughs) in response to that, everybody's eyes turned to the negotiations with the largest of the three unions, the actors of SAG-AFTRA. The wait is over now, and on Wednesday, July 12th, the contract between the 160,000 actors and the studios represented by the AMPTP expired, sending the workers to the picket lines. This is the first time the writers and actors have been on strike at the same time since 1960. 
Your parents don't even remember this. You have to ask a granddad about this one. <laughs> For reference, although many of our listeners have probably heard this stat because it, it's the one that everybody loves to throw out there. Uh, the last time the writers and the actors were on strike, the president of SAG-AFTRA was Ronald Reagan. Yep. I, I did see a little bit about that, but also I also read that the vice president did all of the work and Ronald Reagan yes. just took all the credit. Yeah. Yes, he was also serving as a uh, snitch at yeah. that time. Uh, so yeah, uh, no credit whatsoever to him, but full credit to all of the other actors. But yeah, no, I mean, obviously this is like the big story. Everybody, everybody was very excited last week, appropriately so, especially because the strike kind of started with a bang because we had SAG after president Fran Drescher, who announced the strike at a fucking fire press conference <laughs> where she just laid into the studio bosses for refusing to take the issues that the writers and the actors, because there was constant discussion of the solidarity, which was also amazing, but just the failure to take those issues seriously and, and the continued attempts to portray the actors and writers of out of touch and to dismiss their concerns. And so she really went after them. And so we're going to actually, you know, include a clip here from her opening. I cannot believe it. Quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity, our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. And big business, who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. So yeah, like you can tell she's like really, uh, you know, really fired up about this and, and, and understandably so because, you know, the, the actors actually had given the studios a two-week extension because originally the, the contract was supposed to expire on July 1st, but there was discussions that they were close and so the, the, in, in, in good faith, the, the actors said, all right, fine, you say that we can make these, these things work in two weeks, we'll give you the two weeks. But nope, that was just another delay tactic by the AMPTP. And so, you know, now we've, we've, we've got the actors out on strike. And I think one of the things that's been so great to see is that they have been really explicit in tying their struggle to all the other labor struggles going on right now. Not just the writers, but also specifically the Teamsters and the UPS workers. There's been all sorts of discussions of solidarity. The writers and the actors even sent 
members out to UPS Teamster practice pickets uh, over the last few days, which has been fantastic to see. So it's been the other thing, though, I think that is really important to underline about uh, uh, Fran Drescher's introductory, like her press conference announcing the strike, but also just more broadly with the SAG after strike is how powerful it is to have the most famous workers in the country, actors, you know, out on the picket lines, talking about class struggle. I saw a picture today of David Duchovny on a picket line, which it's like this sort of stuff really helps bring these ideas about class struggle and raising class consciousness into the public consciousness, which I think is something very significant about this strike. Yeah, did TMZ turn into a labor paper or something like that? (laughs) I saw a really great photo of uh, Nathan uh, Fielder with his picket sign, and they were like, Nathan for us. Yeah, (laughs) nailed it, guys. Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've seen so many. I mean, Bob Odenkirk's been out on, like, the WGA line for Mm -hmm. weeks now, and so now, like, he's been out there with so many other people on on, with SAG. It's been fantastic. And, you know, the actors are fighting for a lot of the same things that the writers are fighting for. They they share a lot of the same issues. Uh, Specifically, of course, pay raises for the lowest-paid workers is, is really prominent for both sides because, again, most of these folks are required to live and work in either Los Angeles or New York. Not everybody. Of course, SAG-AFTRA and WGA represent workers all across the country, not just in those cities. But folks who have to live in those cities to work have to pay the ridiculous cost of living in the two, like two of the top most expensive cities in the world, much less the country. And so with the the pay rates that the vast majority of the actors who aren't Tom Cruise or like uh, Cillian Murphy or Timothy Chalamet, who's bringing in millions of dollars for a role, like most workers, actors are out there working $25,000, $30,000 a year, maybe $60,000 if they're doing okay. Yeah, even even your favorite B-listers probably don't crack six figures. Like, do you think Brett Gelman makes a hundred thousand dollars a year? Not that likely. Yeah, and and so that's obviously one of the big things. But in addition, there are of course uh, a lot of issues that are unique to the actors, but still have parallels with the writers. For instance, like they have been asked to do increasingly large amounts of free labor as a part of their job. Because of course, you know, uh, folks will have seen in various forms of media, your traditional audition where you come in, everybody shows up and they come in one by one. Somebody reads across from you and you read off of them and the director judges whether they like you or the casting person or whatever. But now, more in recent years, they've been ditching those and instead asking actors, just record your own audition, which of course means you have to bring in somebody else to read off of you, which means you have to hopefully have a friend who's decent at that. Uh, And you have to do all that work for them for nothing. And if you don't get the role, well, uh, thanks for the free labor. Well, and this also cuts out the work that would normally be provided to uh, sound and, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, AV engineers who are working during the, like, um, casting process or, you know, people who make the schedules or bring in the craft services table or whatever it may be. Yeah, and and so one of the other big ones, and this was also true for writers, but this is probably the one issue, aside from AI, that I think has gotten the most press because some of the numbers that have come out of it are ridiculous, which is how residuals get paid. Basically, once you've done the work, you film the show, 
or 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 a movie and it's gone out there you've gotten your initial pay for that work but you know of course the studios are putting these things on for streaming whether it be on cable streaming on Netflix on whatever all the billion different streaming services and they're making money from those subscriptions and so you're supposed to be getting a residual uh, you know uh, you're con- supposed to continue to get paid because they're profiting off of your work but of course the studios have gamed this system for years, especially the studios involved in so-called new media, uh, to the point where you have so many of these workers, these actors, who get paid basically nothing in residuals. I mean, like one of the, the starkest ones that I saw shown out there was actress uh, Kimiko Glenn, who was a one of the like main actresses in Orange is the New Black, which was a mega hit for mm-hmm. Netflix. It was a huge, like, selling uh, point for them. It was something that moved a lot of subscriptions for them. Honestly, and, I don't watch a lot of stuff, but I did watch that show. Yeah, <laughs> and and she posted a like a picture of a check of a residual check she got for a grand total in 2020. Because people may say, "Well, it's been a few years since that show was on." This is in 2020. Everybody was watching fucking streaming because it's the beginning of COVID. And it was, you know, several years ago. And so Orange is the New Black was slightly like newer. So you would think you're going to get some residuals during a period everyone is, is either stuck at home or they're labeled as an essential worker. She got a grand total of $27.30 in residuals for the entire year of 2020. That's which a made- multi-season show. Yeah, mm-hmm. they really copied their notes from Spotify on this one, didn't they? <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. It's ridiculous. I mean, uh, there was tons of other actors. Uh, Sean Gunn, who who was a prominent actor on Gilmore Girls, which is, granted, that's an older show, but still a huge selling point mm-hmm. for Netflix. And he says he's received basically no money at all whatsoever, like for these millions of streams by Netflix that are bringing in plenty of people, and especially for an, old, an older show like Gilmore Girls, retaining subscriptions for them that people would otherwise cancel. Uh, and then uh, Brock Powell, who's a voice actor, shared on social media <laughs> that in the early days of the pandemic, he did a show for Disney where he did 48 episodes of voice acting work for them. And he got paid $58. <laughs> like, that's worse than jury duty. Yeah. I, you know, there I've I've struggled in the media industry. I mean, I'm an audio engineer, and I, I've struggled to get jobs because I'm not willing to take jobs that don't pay. Um, and I am now seeing that even very, like, well-known people have been forced to take jobs that, that don't pay. This industry is fucked. Yeah, you have a... Yeah. There's, there's a whole... Um, uh, kind of cottage industry of animators, writers, and voice actors who have just gotten together to put projects together out of their own collective pockets on YouTube because it is literally so unprofitable to get into the animation industry from any angle at this point. Yeah, they, they've driven all of the money into the executive rank. It's that's it's it's all there using these algorithms and these black boxes that make it so hard to see how much money they're bringing in. Yeah. Um, well, who's, name a fucking CEO. They couldn't edit one of these episodes to save their fucking life. Yeah. No, I mean obviously. <laughs> um, Bob Iger couldn't even overdub MXC. 
<laughs> no, it's true. It would be terrible. But, uh, but of course, one of the other big issues that has gotten a lot of press has been the issue about AI. And of course, we've talked quite a bit on the show about AI. So I'm not going to go into all the, the the long background and the politics and stuff. But uh, you know, we've talked about the attempts to use things like Chat GPT, large language model generative AIs, to create things like scripts and threaten writers' jobs. Although AI can't do that right now, no matter how much they tell you it can, it can't. Um, but they're trying to use the threat. Well, for actors, I would actually almost argue that the AI threat is more is 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 like more real for the actors because. They're trying to do stuff that isn't even it gets lumped in with AI, but isn't actually AI. Like just recording somebody's did like likeness with a 3D mm-hmm. scanner, and and so like for instance, SAG after chief negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland was asked at the the opening press conference for the strike uh, about the issues with AI and how the negotiations with the studios have gone over, and specifically the what what the studios had called a groundbreaking AI proposal digit promises and they're claiming they had a groundbreaking i'm quoting them ai proposal which protects performers digital likeness so what do you say to that well let me i mean fran may have some things she want to say to that but let me let me just take one of the items that you mentioned and i'm not going to be able not having seen their press release i can't respond to every point of it but this groundbreaking ai proposal that they gave us yesterday and that groundbreaking ai proposal they proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. So, I mean, yeah, he basically lays it out there, which is that their groundbreaking proposal was that they should be able to pay an actor for one day and then own their likeness and be able to use it no matter how what how they want to, without any consent, without any payment, nothing. It's like, I mean, I know it's been, I think it's the sort of thing that I think people, I saw people in the comments saying like, this has literally been a black mirror, <laughs> uh, like plot element. I saw somebody post a clip where it was a BoJack Horseman plot element uh, from several years ago. So it's like, this is a, this is a very real threat to the yeah. livelihoods of so many actors. As the strike and, goes on, more and more shows have the animations of Gollum as the main characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because like it's the thing, and it is one of those things that I feel like it really emphasizes how out of touch the AMPTP are. Because I I just cannot imagine coming to a negotiating table and presenting this as in any way other than, oh yeah, I know you guys are going to hate this, but we have more power than you, and you just have to accept it. Because the idea that you would ever be able to sell this to somebody, oh yeah, we want to do CGI deepfake necromancy on you and never actually ask you about it. We could have you do things that you would find morally objectionable, and we're never going to ask you about it or even tell you about it. Yeah, you're fine with that, right? Here's 50 bucks. Like, it's just like, it's it's insulting, it's craven, it's it's ridiculous and it's precisely why you know these these actors have been so unified and and so uh you know openly willing to strike and the funny thing is you know there were multiple statements that came out uh leading up to the possibility of a strike of, of actors basically being like uh 
don't listen to any of them. We are willing to strike. Don't like, don't sign a quick, simple deal because you're worried about this. They're like, we want to deal with these issues now. Mm-hmm. And then thankfully, you know, I think in Fran Drescher, they have a, a president who understands that and has been very militant, which rules. Yeah, well, and the AMPTP has uh, gone ahead and just fucked everything up really bad for themselves <laughs> by trying to respond to all of this militant uh, labor organizing by attempting to intimidate these striking actors. So just prior to the deadline for SAGRAFTRA to actually go on strike, an anonymous member of the AMPTP spoke with bloggers at Deadline saying, quote, the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses, end quote. And this uh, probably had the exact... I'm reminded of the Facebook group, I bet you were totally unprepared for the response your post is getting. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, In particular, we heard at the top of the show from actor Ron Perlman in a since deleted but still widely available because it's utter fire from beginning to end, TikTok responding to the attack and comments by Disney CEO Bob Iger that actors and writers aren't being realistic in their demands by warning the boss bosses not to push things too far lest the workers realize they have no need for highly paid studio bosses to make the industry run because yeah man uh there ain't a single fucking job in hollywood that requires multi-million dollar fucking paycheck every year for sitting in an office in a suit yeah and i think something that's just so cathartic about like that clip is having somebody very, very famous. I mean, I know Ron Perlman's not like Tom Cruise, but I mean, he was Hellboy. He's been in a lot of big stuff. But to come out there, because, you know, there's the stuff, there's all the spicy stuff that everybody likes, but there's, there's the part in there where he specifically gets in there. He's like, you out there making $27 million for doing fucking nothing. Like having somebody who's famous enough that you can't ignore it, just say that to the boss's face to just be like, no, it's not that you're overpaid. It's that you are fucking useless. It's like you are a drain on the system. It's just really nice to hear for for once from somebody who has a platform that they can't just ignore it from. Yeah, I want to hear there. I, I want to hear from the really animated guys. Like I want to hear from the guy who plays like Arthur on... Um the fucking uh, Peaky Blinders. But I also oh. want to hear from like, <laughs> I want to hear from like Joe Para. I want to hear him yes. get, get like heated about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So like um, on the first day of the strike, uh, as I mentioned, actors joined writers on picket lines in New York and LA, but they also joined other workers as well. They joined picketing uh, UPS Teamsters on, on practice picket lines, uh, showing cross-union solidarity. Really, I think at a level we haven't seen in years uh, that we've been seeing in the run-up to this strike. And and not one way. Like, the Teamsters were out there supporting the WGA. They're out there supporting SAG-AFTRA and vice versa, which is absolutely love it. And so, like, in addition to these, you know, mass actions, we also saw, you know, uh, some big names doing a lot of stuff here. Like, literally, the, the day the strike was announced... It was the same time as the premiere, the London premiere for Oppenheimer, one of the biggest blockbusters of of the year, the new Christopher Nolan movie. And at the premiere, when the announcement came out, Cillian Murphy, uh, Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt, like the stars of the movie, some of the biggest, you know, names in Hollywood, all just left. (laughs) They're just like, nope, strikes on, no more fancy premieres, which you love to see because it's like... you know, we know that they're part of the union and that they're, you know, workers just like everybody else. But there's always that concern that, you know, the folks that are super rich are going to like necessarily empathize 
with the rest of the workforce. But I haven't seen anything as far as like like the the big name actors even like downplaying the strike. They've all been like, yeah, no, we gotta like we're not gonna have a profession if we don't fight for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, everybody's yeah. been on board. It's really, it's really awesome to see. Uh, Doc and Jackson, the guys who make the Venture Brothers, canceled their big premiere of the yeah. the movie that was supposed to have all of the voice actors there. It was supposed to be this big to do. They were just like, "Can't do it. Sorry, go Team SAG Astra." So, Hell yeah, we love it. So yeah, I mean, obviously the media is doing everything they can to paint the actors as out of touch and rich and like not not real workers and all that. But uh, I, I don't think that's working, <laughs> and I think it's just continuing to make people not listen. It's actually uh, to- surprising. The comment sections, though, having you know peppered in pieces of shit, they're actually not that bad. Yeah, because I think generally, like you know, the worker, the 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 workers in Hollywood and New York, and the workers in SAG-AFTRA are tapping into the same vein of anger and outrage at just how exploitative these bosses have been in every industry. And so it's something that I think that everybody can really empathize with. And so seeing 180,000 workers now out on strike is something huge, but we've also got the possibility in a couple of weeks where may, we may see f- half a million workers between SAG-AFTRA, the WGA, uh, and UPS out on strike at the same time. So folks, Solidarity Summer is uh, looking like it's going to be a hot one. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Now, we do have to talk about this next thing, though. This is something that we've seen a lot of of commentary speculation about, uh, it, especially in our Discord server, and uh, we kind of wanted to actually address it. So one of the things that happened uh, over a year ago was the historic election win at JFK 8, becoming the first and so far only recognized union at Amazon. The ALU has been fighting an uphill battle against the commercial juggernaut to just to get them to the table or even recognize them, which I think that they still haven't, despite being legally mandated by a court to do so. Uh, I mean, they've rolled out all the stops, spent millions of dollars, uh, broken every bit of labor law in the book to thwart organizing efforts in the facility at Staten Island. Um, Albany, Kentucky, several others. I mean, it's gotten bad enough that the NLRB did file a complaint against the company's refusal to bargain. Uh, The complaint asked an administrative law judge to order Amazon to bargain in good faith. So far, to not really much effect. Uh, This week, we did see, though, the announcement of the formation of a reform group within the ALU, the ALU Democratic Reform Caucus, in a statement announcing their formation and goals. The Reform Caucus said, quote, The ALU's current executive board is entirely unelected and self-appointed. Not only do we feel this is unlawful and anti-democratic, it is also a major barrier to organizing workers in support of a contract fight, as democracy is a key element to engaging workers. Our executive board has consolidated power by postponing elections indefinitely, adopting a new constitution without proper amendment procedure or ratification vote, and engaging in other undemocratic schemes to suppress dissent. Most importantly, they have yet to present a credible plan to force Amazon to the negotiating table, end quote. And... That is a very, uh, there's a lot there that we kind of need to unpack 
because it seems like there have been some internal struggles within the union. And I am, for one, very hopeful that we get this resolved because this union needs to be united. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one. They, the, the members of the Reform Caucus say that they've attempted to address their concerns internally with union leadership multiple times, but uh, that that has not been successful and that they felt forced to organize in opposition to win their demands. Uh, the caucus also filed a lawsuit on July uh, 10th, last Monday, asking the courts to impose a secret ballot election for union officers overseen by a neutral monitor. Uh, they say that the union was required to hold such elections within a year of their recognition, which, of course, would have been April 1st of this year, uh, but that they have not. Uh, the ALU has, for their part, said that they will hold elections for the executive board, but when they reach a first contract with Amazon. Um, the Reform Caucus is made up of uh, several prominent organizers within the union, including former treasurer Connor Spence, former organizing director Brett Daniels, uh, as well as Brima Silla, another lead organizer. Folks may remember if you were listening to the show a year ago when we talked about this. He was the, um, like... Really, like I think he he was the organizer who helped uh, bring in so many of the uh, workers from other parts of the world. Because, of course, Amazon in New York has a very multinational uh, working class base. And so he he was a, a big help in with knowledge of multiple languages of bringing in a lot of folks that way. Um, 86 members of the union signed on to the lawsuit calling for an election, and the caucus gathered another 800 signatures for a petition out of the between five and 8,000 workers at JFK 8. Uh, however, on th- last Thursday, July 13th, a judge dismissed the caucus's complaints, telling the workers to handle the dispute internally. And, and this is one of those things that, like... It's tough because, and, and I'm and I'm sure that our response is not going to make everybody ecstatic, <laughs> because these sorts of internal disputes can get pretty heated. And one of the things, as to Lena's point, that we always, you know, we we really want to focus on here is that like we support union democracy, we support efforts for workers to have a democratically elected executive board, uh, but uh, ultimately we hope that both sides in this dispute. Uh, are like that ultimately, and I believe this, that ultimately, whichever side of this you're on, that both sides ultimately their, their goal is to have the best and like union that the ALU can possibly be and put themselves in the best position to do that. And clearly they disagree on how to do that. Well, Um, and I think that when we were, we were talking about this outside the show. And one of the things that you mentioned is that we also want to be clear that, you know, this isn't some union with a huge history of business unionism. This is like, we, this is a newly formed union that has some struggles that they're trying to work out. This is something that, you know, I mean, again, we hope that there is democracy within the union i mean they're right when they say that it is essential to a strong union um we just also think that it is really important that with the way that things are happening that the union is able to continue to fight with whatever outcome happens ah yes the the old question of war communism I believe <laughs> Lennon had a lot to say about this one. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's, it's just that it's like, look, I, I'm not saying, you know, don't form a reform caucus in an independent union or, or like you have to put off your concerns about democracy. That's not what we're saying. We're just 
I don't want people to c- come into this uh, like, you know, some of the other stories that we've talked about in the past where you have, like, for instance, you know, when we, we did the series on Jimmy Hoffa. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come out here and say, oh, Jimmy Hoffa was just like his opposition. And he wanted, you know, to, to fight the bosses just as hard. No, he was stealing from other teamsters. So I'm going to come out there and be very, very critical of that. That's very bad. That's not the situation we're in here. I like, I don't, we don't know all the internal facts about the disputes about how the union should be run, who's on what side. So I don't want to be like stirring up animosity, you know, against one side or the other. I think ultimately what we want to come to here is that clearly a decent chunk of the workers in the ALU feel that their voices are not being heard and that they want to have a democratic election for their executive board. And I think we support a a democratic election for an executive board because a union uh, has to be democratic in order to be powerful. It's the only, the only way to really unlock the power of all the workers and to be as dynamic as you need to be to take on a company as big, powerful, and ruthless as Amazon is you need to be able to leverage the uh, abilities of every single member of your union. And the best way to do that is by empowering them democratically. Yeah. Well, at the same time, we can't use this as an opportunity to drive a wedge. And I've seen some takes that have been, frankly, uh, very reductive about, you know, let's just about... Chris Smalls, honestly, like, you know, there might be some issues there, but he's a union guy. He's there and like you can't just be spreading, you know, divisive stuff because it's going to end up hurting the union in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. So like fundamentally, again, like I know this is probably not going to be a super satisfying segment for a lot of listeners, but part of that is because we don't want to play any sort of additional role in fomenting any sort of division in there. Ultimately, what we would want to see out of this is for ideally, and I'm not saying this will happen and perhaps it's idealistic, but for the two sides to hash it out, whether it is through an election, whether it's through some internal agreement, uh, whatever it ends up being, and Mm -hmm. that there's an election, whichever side wins. And then, you know, the workers understand that it's like, look, we've, 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 once we've put in these democratic structures, which are vital, absolutely Mm -hmm. agree on that point, that the primary contradiction here is the fight with Amazon. Like it, it, and it's, this is where, you know, when we were talking outside of this, this is where I feel like, uh, reading Mao is actually very helpful because what we have in inside the ALU is a contradiction among the people. It's, you have, two groups of people within the union who both want to take on Amazon and disagree about how to do it. And they may have very vehement disagreements, but it's at the end of the day, it's workers who are ultimately have an antagonistic contradiction, Mm -hmm. a primary contradiction with the bosses. And so we are hopeful that this, you know, internal debate is able to make the union stronger and that the union is able to come together, put in some democratic procedures, and move forward fighting against Amazon because, like, <laughs> they are, you know, going to be the toughest opponent out there. And so uh, we just want, you know, whatever is going to put the ALU in the best position to be able to wage that fight and improve conditions for workers because, like, with ultimately any union that wants to take on Amazon's army of lawyers, purchase politicians, and ultimately the police is going to need all hands on deck pulling in the same direction. So, you know, again, very supportive of union democracy 
and, and we hope that workers are able to put in some democratic, uh, you know, structures and, and advance the fight against Amazon. Right. So we're yeah. not trying to say like, oh, this side is right or that side is right or this guy's bad or whatever. We're saying that if you're in the Teamsters and you're, or I'm sorry, excuse me, if you're in, <laughs> if you're in the, we've been talking Teamsters so much. If you're in the ALU and you're confused about how to handle this situation, just read on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. <laughs> And you'll be all right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, so we do support the ALU, but the ALU as a whole. And we hope to see good union democracy. And we hope to see that y'all are able to come together. Absolutely. Let's... uh, Let's actually talk about the Teamsters. Yeah, this is why I had the ALU and the Teamsters mixed up, is because our next story is the Teamsters X Amazon, baby. We're finally doing it. We're figuring it out. You may have <laughs> thought UPS was the only thing on the table, but it's not. Sean O'Brien has grander plans than that. So uh, Amazon has gotten away for a long time with mistreating drivers through subcontracting out their last mile delivery to a variety of local delivery services. However, Amazon is, in this arrangement, allowed to unilaterally set hours, minimum wages, route assignments, and the total number of packages that the drivers must deliver. They select what vendor the company must buy their Amazon-branded vans from, and they dictate driver uniforms. They even control how many water bottles the workers can take with them on their shift. (laughs) I will say... I was not aware that they even told the the companies where they could buy their delivery bands. It's really outrageous. They're literally like not just saying like, look, we want control over your employees. We also want control over all of your internal services right. and the way that you do ordering. Like it's basically a franchise kind of situation. Yeah, um, absolutely. And if this sounds suspiciously like Amazon is functionally the employer in this situation, that's because precisely that is what's happening, except <laughs> not technically legally. So welcome to America. Um, yes. One of these subcontracted delivery companies known as Battle Tested Strategies, or BTS for short, K-pop fans absolutely I don't know, overjoyed, seething, I'm not sure, (laughs) Um, is an enterprise in Southern California with 84 drivers and is one of the 2,500 delivery service partners that Amazon contracts out, commonly known as DSPs. Uh, They have also, interestingly, unionized with Teamsters Local 396 just this April. So these workers began organizing all the way back last August over low wages and unsafe conditions, particularly working in the blazing desert heat. Most of the vans have broken air conditioners and drivers were at severe risk for heat-related injury and illness because, unsurprisingly, Southern California is very hot. Um, so so part of what they tell the, the, the companies they have to do is you have to buy these cheap vans that have the shittiest air conditioning system in the world that will break immediately. That instantly breaks if you even turn it up <laughs> to the lowest setting. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, so as mentioned before, Amazon bizarrely limited the number of water bottles that the drivers were allowed to bring with them. Additionally, the drivers were concerned about dog attacks because last year an Amazon driver in Missouri was killed by dogs. Uh, and I mean, it's kind of a cliche that like delivery drivers have to worry about dogs, but that shit comes from somewhere and dogs can no. be very scary if they're not properly taken care of. It's real. I, I mean, I have a friend who used to be a, a an Amazon driver it, it, with his own vehicle, not with the, one of their vans. 
but he had to deliver something to a place where they're like, you have to deliver this to the back. If you deliver it to the front door, I'm going to say that you didn't deliver it or blah, 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 blah. And so he went to go do that. And he got fucking bit by their dog that they left right by the door. They said, you have to deliver stuff to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, like that, that, that happens all the time. Yeah. Well, and these are, so these are totally reasonable demands, absolutely grounded in the real world experiences that many people have a personal connection to. And when presented with these and the threat of a walkout, Amazon did actually fix some of the vans, started providing cooling towels, and allowed the drivers to carry, and this is absolutely fucking insane to me, that this is the upgrade, two whole 16-ounce water bottles a day. Oh. That, that's that's as much as I drink while we sit here recording. I, yeah. I, yeah, I see, <laughs> I misread your notes. I thought that was 160-ounce bottles of water. No. Two 16-ounce bottles of water? Yeah, 32 ounces of hydration for what could be up to a 12-hour shift. In Southern California, you're going to sweat more than that in, like, two hours. Well, (laughs) I think what this is is this is them trying to make it so that they don't end up having the, the piss bottles issue because if you're if you're sweating that <sighs> all out you you don't have to pee and so they just restrict how much water you can take in the first place it's actually more cost effective to have extremely dehydrated workers on the verge of death all the time <laughs> love it wonderful lean business practices and we got the we yeah we learned that from this study from mckinsey written by this guy named pete yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But soon after, uh, finally caving to some small section of the demands after being threatened with a walkout, uh, Amazon did also respond by enrolling the owner of BTS, Jonathan Irvin, who is an Air Force veteran, which explains the battle-tested strategy's name. Uh, They enrolled him in union-busting training, where he says that an Amazon representative said, quote, if you unionize, your contract will be cut, end quote. So... When the drivers did unionize, BTS, to Jonathan's credit, voluntarily recognized the driver union and, perhaps laudably, perhaps knowing full well what would happen next, even agreed to a contract that would raise wages to $30 an hour by September, more than a 50% increase from their previous rate of $19.75 an hour. In response to the contract, Amazon wasted no time announcing on April 24th that they would be canceling their contract with BTS on June 24th. The Teamsters turned around and also wasted no time filing a request with the NLRB. They have argued that the that Amazon is obviously a joint employer with BTS, but has refused to recognize the union or bargain in any way. And we did hear from employment scholar David Wheel commenting on the situation, who wrote in an email to Labor Notes, quote, Amazon wants to have it both ways total operational control, but no employment responsibility. As the sole source of deliveries, Amazon controls key aspects of what BTS does as a contractor. The Teamsters request to the National Labor Relations Board to review Amazon's decision to cut off BTS as a contractor right before BTS recognized the union poses the critical question. Can Amazon have it both ways? Can they benefit from a contractor that operates as an extension of Amazon, but not be held responsible? End quote. Uh, so far, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is uh this is the whole point of of outside contracting why so many businesses try to wedge that into the contracts mm-hmm. in in the first place. Yeah. And uh, the workers were absolutely clear-eyed about what was going on here. Uh, they walked off the job several times during the remaining portion of the contract to pr- protest Amazon's refusal to come to the bargaining table. 
uh, or recognize their joint employer status in any way. And since the contract was canceled on June 24th, the Teamsters have taken the picket line to seven warehouses across the country in California, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, following the logic that Amazon is quite obviously a joint employer here. And so we can just picket your warehouses. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) I love so much about this. (laughs) But one thing in particular is that this is almost like they've made a new version of an old, of an actually a pretty old tactic, uh, the Flying Squadron, mm-hmm. which was first rolled out by the UAW when they were they were I think, uh, you know when they were first trying to you know force the big automakers in Detroit to recognize their union. They would use what are called flying squadrons where they would deploy pickets to certain places. But then when they would get reports of like, oh, this is where the company's trying to bring in scabs or like this picket line's getting harassed by police, they would have reserves who are available to be dispatched by car to hot points where they would need more backup on the picket line. Well, the Teamsters are like, the picket line is everywhere, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Am- this is America. Amazon is in every city in this country. And that means we can just have flying squadrons all over the country. Uh, you're, yeah, we're operating out of Southern California. Fuck it. We're going to go strike places in Massachusetts. Who cares? Amazon continues. They operate everywhere. Why shouldn't we? I love this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just love that they've taken this local as basically a case study and been like, you know what? Fuck it. This local. We're going to fight for them. And if we win, it's going to set the fucking precedent that like this this like hiding behind subcontracting shit just isn't going to fly anymore. And that doesn't just cut like a blow to companies like Amazon that do subcontracting. That cuts a blow to all companies everywhere who misclassify their workers and misrepresent mm-hmm. their relationship to them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we have a quote here from uh, veteran labor organizer Rand Wilson who said, quote, labor law permits workers at one employer who are seeking to improve their wages and working conditions to extend primary pickets to related employers. In this case, Amazon facilities across the country. The Teamsters are turning adversity into an advantage by mobilizing a national campaign in support of the workers at one small DSP in Palmdale that formed a union, end quote. I mean, yeah. it's pretty smart to, I mean, they, I mean, they must have done some, we mentioned this one when it first came up, that this must be fairly well coordinated with, for one, accepting the contract right away, and like, I, I'm really impressed with the way that the Teamsters are handling this, and especially how committed these workers are to fighting against Amazon. Absolutely. Well, and Amazon turned around and they called this uh, nomadic picket line, quote unquote, astroturfed and expressed (laughs) the bizarre sentiment that it was also, quote unquote, initiated and attended by mostly outside organizers. But uh, Luis Feliz Leon, who wrote the uh, Labor Notes article that I use primarily for this, spent like two paragraphs just dismissing that. He was like, here's all the people who were there. It was mostly uh, Teamsters, people from that local, and a bunch of people from a bunch of other unions, and like some DSA folks showed up. It was a very normal picket line. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, yeah, and I mean, I mean, I know they would call my comrades outside organizers, sure. but there was all sorts of, uh, you know, P- I, there was a bunch of PSL folks at their protest here in, in, in Massachusetts, and it's from PSL folks from the area. Mm-hmm. So it's like, these aren't people showing up from nowhere. It's workers who are in the area who are like, a picket line, my fellow workers. I should go support them. Also, you're fucking Amazon. You can't call anything AstroTurf. Right. Even if, 
Even if you called something AstroTurf that was AstroTurfed, I would not believe you because you are Amazon. True, true. <laughs> I, like, come on. I'm, I'm so floored that they would use such a term. Oh man, it's just ridiculous. They're gonna start put that. They're gonna start doing like land acknowledgement podcast mm-hmm. now or some other. Oh yeah, they'll bullshit. be kneeling in kente cloths and stuff. You know, whatever. Uh, but so I mean, like, yeah, the Teamsters uh, have been incredibly impressive through this entire thing, and it's particularly impressive to me because we are currently in the full scale knockdown drag out fight going on over the UPS contract. So you know, you would think like maybe a union might just focus on like the biggest rock in the pot for right now but they said no fuck that and uh they sean o'brien and many other people in the new leadership at the teamsters have mentioned that going after amazon is another one of their biggest priorities so it's great to see that they're getting the ball rolling on that without any delay uh it is hard to know exactly how long this fight for the workers from bts will take but if the teamsters flex their flex their strike muscles against ups on july 31st it will be an awfully big signal to jeff bezos and company that they are just about as serious as they have ever been right now so um, yeah i think they're also really going to inspire a lot of amazon workers that strike mm-hmm. when they bring the country to uh, a partial standstill for with just a single strike, they, and then they get this amazing contract. The Amazon workers are going to be like, "I want that contract." Yeah. So yeah, well, and I mean, you talked about how Sean O'Brien's been targeting Amazon, but I mean, we've heard that from the the rank and file, you know, UPS folks who we mm-hmm. talked to last week. You know, this is I, I think it's it's an understanding that like is it's deeper than just the leadership. Like, I think it's, it's like everybody understands that like Amazon not being union is a threat to the whole working class. And so like, yeah, it's fantastic to see them like understand that it's like, this is not like a secondary effort. This is all hands on deck. Yeah. And uh, it just seems like that this slate has been kept out of the game for so long that they're really fucking champing at the bit to just get as much shit done as they possibly can. And it just so happens that that's probably the most correct strategy to be doing right now. Yeah. Well, well making speaking up, of that, yeah, I was say, making up for lost time. And that is exactly what we're going to be kind of getting towards in our next story is we've talked about uh, the UAWD or unite all workers for democracy, which is a caucus within the UAW. They, and how they led their election sweep with the uh, UAW Members United slate getting seven of 13 seats on the executive board of UAW. Uh, and we're now just seeing the beginnings of what the reform slate looks like in practice at, you know, with the negotiations of the big three automakers kicking off this past Wednesday, the 12th. Uh, there are about 150,000 UAW members between General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. And uh, Sean Fain has been very open that the UAW is going to change tactics in negotiating with them. Uh, there's a couple different points to this, but the first one was got a lot of press. Um, and I guess it is a big deal. Because it's An been inordinate amount of press. Yeah. I saw so many articles about this. Yeah, is and it's kind of a symbolic thing, but he had refused to do the historic handshake with the CEOs to kick off bargaining. And uh, instead, they took the opportunity to have a handshake ceremony with the members of the union and go around to a couple different plants and talk to the to the union members about what they wanted out of this contract. Um, it's something that uh, is also notable because I think it was the, la- the last UAW president to do this denial of handshake was Walter Ruther. 
and yeah. uh, and I mean like you know Walter Ruther being a uh, kind of an iconic UAW president also has his problems but you both know both of still. his names both of his names sound like a gun <laughs> <laughs> what, what his name is walther ruger yeah <laughs> yeah um he had his problems but he was as 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 u.s uh trade unionists go he's up there yeah 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 well and uh i mean the uaw has has as of uh, back in may they held their first ever nationwide town hall meeting which is i think was a, a pretty good start to uh getting the organizing going for this campaign uh, they are also now currently, and I mean, over the past little bit, have been sending out cards for all of the members to fill out to basically show that they are united in fighting for a good contract, and also so that they can get inf- good information for on how to communicate with the workers on how bargaining is going, and to hear from workers on what they're looking for. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fane's team really seems like they're focusing. I mean, just I mean, as an outsider, just watching through social media, it really seems like they've prioritized communication with the rank and file as like one of the things they've put a lot of effort into, which is fantastic. I mean, that's filling the what they were they they ran on, which I is think- fantastic and going to be really critical if they're going to have a strike with the big three and make it effective. Yeah, and I think that it might be making, a, again, making up for a little bit of lost time, because if sure. we remember the election, they did have a little bit of a struggle reaching out to many of the members, mm-hmm. which meant that they probably didn't have everybody's contact information very well. And so this is one way that they're trying to actually make sure that they are connected with the members. Um, and uh, Sean Fain also went on a Facebook live kind of right around this time uh he was also symbolically and he made sure to point this out it talked a lot about this shirt but he was wearing this uh this malcolm x shirt that was that said by any means necessary and he's like you know it's not about uh you know uh you know what we're willing to give up it's what we're willing to do to win and you know he's, he's, he was a good speaker it was nice uh he also was talking about negotiations in 2003 saying that the concessions that the leadership had uh put up were uh, not only like uh the union leaders being mouthpieces of the company but straight up company unionists which this may not it might mean something to our listeners but if a UAW president is calling former administration company unionists that's not business unionists that's not people who you know mean well but don't understand how contradiction works that's people who are working for the company that is i mean and again this is just rhetoric but i don't know it kind of meant something to me i mean it's uh, yeah it's very forceful words uh and i mean i guess to his case like uh you know in the last 20 years since that point he's talking about the big three have closed 30 plants in the united states and and Meanwhile, in the last decade, they've made a quarter of a trillion dollars, so $250 billion between the three of them in profit. And and that's been one of the big motivators, you know, of course, behind not just the leadership, of course, but the rank and file, more importantly, uh, on being like, yeah, no more of this. Like, we can't take another 20 years of that. And we this is we have to fight back. And so uh, it's been really encouraging to see because it's like, you know, we've got sag after on strike. WGA on strike. We have 1,400 UE workers at Wobtech 
making green locomotives on strike. We get the ILWU workers in Canada, which might as well be America on strike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got like all sorts of smaller strikes all over the country. You got fight for 15, you got, you know, Starbucks. And so it's like, this is the time. This is a upsurge in labor struggle. Now is the time to fight back while we have, you know, solidarity is actually on a lot of people's minds. And it's really good to see that at this moment, we have a leadership that is laser focused on that. Right. And I think that that also kind of that laser focus is I didn't put this in the notes, but one of the things that he said that he was consistently asked is like, who is it that we're focusing on? Because I'm guessing that in previous negotiations, it was we're focusing on Ford this time or we're focusing on GM this time or we're focusing on Stellantis this time. And he's said that we're not yeah chrysler yeah but uh he said we're not doing that we are taking on the big three we are not we're not going to be accepting these the concessions and doing concessionary bargaining from any of them we are actually going to go to the table and fight for the members and some of yeah and just that i mean that it makes it, it only makes sense because otherwise you're competing against yourself like because these three contracts are all intimately linked. Uh, they're, they're for auto workers. They're making, yes, the cars are a little different and the, the individual job may change a little bit place to place, but they're making the same thing. And they're ultimately, theoretically at least, competitors. And so, like, all three are going to try and game the contract negotiations to give themselves an advantage against everybody else. Uh, for instance, one of the things, just to throw out a historical example of this real quickly, uh, is that you know back in the 80s, there was a, a bailout by uh, the federal government for Chrysler, because Chry- now Stellantis. Chrysler has always been, or at least in my lifetime, and even my parents' lifetime, always kind of the lesser of the big three. Uh, and they had to get bailed out by Congress back in the 80s. And part of the deal for the federal government to bail them out was a wage freeze, was that the contract that they would sign with the UAW would have to not increase labor costs. And the other automakers then came back and said during negotiations, well, you can't, you can't give our competitor a wage freeze and not give us a wage freeze. And then the concessions just rolled downhill from there. And so I think that's an important understanding that it's like you have to fight all three of those companies as hard as it is at the same time. Yeah. Well, and some of the things that they're going to be fighting for after kind of polling the membership and also just looking at historic concessions that have happened uh, are things like the reinstatement of COLA, uh, making sure that there are raises that are affected by the cost of living and aren't affected that aren't affected by the raises. Um, they want to eliminate tiers, which in this industry are called growing positions. Which oh man, that's uh, so patronizing. Yeah, like like you now at some point maybe you'll get to that point, but for now you're fucked. Um, you you need to mature into doing the same job that you'd have now, but for more. Yeah, yeah, that's taking that's taking the crown as the new most condescending thing I've heard employees referred to as the previous being enthusiasts. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> yeah, they want to improve wages, they want to make uh pensions better and just provide more retirement security. They want to maintain the platinum healthcare package that they've got going. And I'm guessing that that's, I mean, we know that in contract negotiation, that's usually where the company is like, okay, you can have the raise, but now you have to take that cut on the healthcare. They said that they're not going to do the concessions on that. And then there was a kind of an overall sentiment of quote unquote economic justice, which was again, a reference back to the historic concessions that they are going to fight back and tried to, you know, win back 
in these in this fight against the big three. Uh, the current contract is set to expire September 14th. So uh, we'll see how a lot of this organizing goes, and we'll try to keep y'all updated on all of that. Yeah, just a yeah. couple so, months away. Yeah, it could be. I mean, literally, you could be four weeks after the end of a UPS strike rolling into a four GM and Stellantis strike. Hell yeah. Whew. I mean, busy summer. To see the rolling strikes in this country go right on into the fall. You love to see it, folks. Um, it really hits home. And speaking of hitting home, let's talk about an area of the country. Lena and I have both lived. I think I actually did live right in Chippewa Falls. I was talking about this on a podcast. Was that this show or was that yeah. Deepy Pletus? Okay. It was, well, I mean, I think you mentioned it at least once. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was like, what is even in Chippewa Falls? A line in Kugel Brewery? Surprise! They're striking it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so for the first time since 1980, the Line and Kugel's brewery workers have gone on strike. Line and Kugel's is owned by Molson Coors, and workers say they have been offered a raise that doesn't keep up with inflation. In response, the union of about 40 workers voted 98% to strike and began their strike on the 10th. Wisconsin oh, man, that, still has their that... cool socialist union moments. That means they had one person. Yes. Who voted no if it was 98% of 40 people. Uh-huh. <laughs> that means they had one no. Come vote. on, Terry. You got to vote yes. I'm not voting yes. I swear to God, <laughs> Terry, I will twist your arm. I'm not fucking voting yes, boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Dan Jackson, a maintenance technician who has worked at the brewery for 16 years, said, quote, we are sick of the corporate greed and want a fair and equitable pay increase. We are underpaid given our qualifications and the number of different jobs that we do. And uh, Burley's Bar in downtown Chippewa Falls, a local watering hole, has stopped serving Line and Kugel's beer in solidarity with the strike. Thank you, Burley's Bar. Yeah. Um, if you're ever in Chippewa Falls, check out the Acoustic Cafe. No, wait, that's the other place that's, I lived. That's Never mind. <laughs> that was Eau Claire. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's not a ton of information on this, but you know, they're they're fighting against uh one of the big beer producers. So solidarity with these teamsters out in Wisconsin. Yeah, you better give them a good contract so I can have a nice summer shandy when uh, August rolls around and I'm trying to enjoy the Wisconsin heat. Wisconsin heat is two weeks of overcast skies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, to move to our next story, one thing that is kind of often overlooked when it comes to like how unions function is that, you know, the unions themselves have staff in the buildings and you'd think, well, this is a union, right? Well, they can't actually be members of that union because that would be a conflict of interest. If there was a con, if there was uh, an issue with one of the staff there, what would they do? Defend the worker against themselves? No, they have their, these staff have their own unions. And particularly the NEA has a, uh, this was actually also provided to us by one of our members of the Discord, and we really appreciate uh, all the people talking about their own struggles there. But uh, shout outs to Comrade Pork Roll. Yeah. Great name. (laughs) This is uh, not actually the best story because uh, the Association of Field Service Employees uh, is the union that is for the staff workers at the National Education Association. And you'd really think that that the NEA would want to set a good example of bargaining in good faith. You know, they're a union. But unfortunately, the NFSE uh, has been without a contract since June 1st. And 
uh, an even more unfortunate news when the AFSE attempted to do a, like an informational picket, basically going in there, handing out flyers, and talk to some of the members of the NEA and also the staff that were there. Uh, on July 4th, the NEA called the cops on him. That sucks. It, yeah, that's not cool. Like, look, even if I was to give the NEA the complete benefit of the doubt, like just complete, like, these people were showing up and being super disruptive and being jerks and keeping people from doing their jobs or whatever. And I'm not saying that happened. I'm just trying to create this setup strong yeah, situation. It, and it didn't even look like that. No, it looks like it was very, uh, you know, polite uh, flyering. Uh, even if that was happening, okay, deal with it. Don't fucking call the police on union staffers because you're annoyed by what they're doing. Like, come on. Yeah. So let's be adults. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's messed up. Yeah. And so the AFSC has put out a request for people to sign a little like solidarity letter. We're going to put a link in the show notes so that, you know, you can tell the NEA to be like, Hey, don't be, don't be shitty. Come on. You're a union. You should set a good union example. Yeah. You guys are all fighting for the same thing. So don't call the cops on your fellow trade unionists. Yeah. Well, uh, we got one last story that we wanted to hit, and uh, you know we didn't miss it, folks. You know you might have think think uh, you might have thought they really have not hit my favorite story that's happened recently. Well, here it is, folks. Sonic is a union man. There you go, gamers. Are you happy yet? Did you <laughs> are, did you suffer through enough Teamster talk? Oh, they're only the most important union in the country right now. Shut up. We know you want to hear about the hedgehog. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, folks. John was very disappointed that we didn't get to talk about this story because it last episode because it happened right before. uh, Happened while we were recording, literally. (laughs) So, yeah. So we have talked uh, briefly in the past about the fact that there has been an ongoing effort to unionize at Sega. And of course, efforts to unionize the video game industry more broadly have seen their first few successes over the last couple of years. For a long time, of course, like most of the rest of the tech sector, it was considered one of those areas that was just not really very likely to unionize, too difficult uh, in certain areas, too much turnover in certain areas. The culture is just not right. You know, that gets thrown out there all the time. But over the last couple of years, we've seen some real successes there. And last Monday, as I mentioned, on July 10th, we saw another step forward there when workers at Sega announced that they'd won their union election by a margin of 91 to 26. And these workers who cover multiple departments at Sega are organized under the CWA under the banner Aegis because, of course, they are uh, video game employees, so they had to come up with a cool-sounding acronym for their union. Nerds. Um, which We which love is, you. The Allied Employees Guild Improving Sega, which I think is a great name. I love a good backronym. Hell yeah. Congress Um, could never. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) But so these are our workers in marketing, testing, and even, you know, product development across the country. And and they now stand as the second largest video game union in the U.S., only behind the 300 unionized workers at ZeniMax. And so... Unfortunately, Sega did not just hear the the workers' concerns, hear that they're organizing and say, oh, our workers who make Sonic are going to unionize. Let us allow them to do that. Nope, they instead 
did the same thing most companies do. They hired union-busting consultants to try and defeat the worker organizing, uh, but obviously didn't have very much success there. They hired Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, you ended up with an 80%. Uh, yes rate on the vote there. So, and, and now that these workers have been officially recognized with their union victory, they say that the things they plan to fight for in their first union contract are for more staff to cut down on overwork, which is, of course, something we hear about constantly in game development. And, of course, you're going to hear from managers in the game development uh, industry like, well, no, we for most of the year, we have all the staff that we need. If we had extra staff, we wouldn't be able to give them work. We only need the extra people during the crunch time well then maybe reorganize your work so you don't have crunch time you're the manager figure it out but you can't make people work fucking 100 hour weeks during crunch and that's exactly what unions like aegis are here to fight for yeah and you better listen to them or we'll fucking whack you and knock all your rings on the floor (laughs) (laughs) insert the sonic ring noise (laughs) um but yeah so they're also fighting for of course better pay and benefits uh but and something we've heard a lot in the video game industry more options for remote work uh and also stricter job definitions Uh, which may sound counterintuitive, but it's one of those things that is really vital because without strict job definitions, your job definition will continuously grow as your manager finds more things they can get you to do without hiring somebody to actually do that job. Uh, Yeah, the the cleaning staff are not able to come in. You got to take out all the trashes. Uh, Sorry, I know it's not what you normally do, but you don't have a contract. Those four lovely words every worker wants to hear from their steward. That's not their job. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so uh, we heard from uh, Angel Gomez, who is a translator at Sega, who said in a statement through the CWA, quote, Now, through our union, we'll be able to protect the parts of our jobs we love and strengthen the benefits, pay, and jobs stability available to all workers. Together, we can build an even better Sega. We hope our victory today is an inspiration to other workers across the gaming industry. Together, we can raise standards for all workers across this industry. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of things that are our jobs, we have to do what we do every week. The meme review. And that's right, folks. In in uh, solidarity with the new Sega Union, I put a Sonic meme right here at the beginning. Oh hell yeah! Stage one, City Escape, great fucking song. By the way, that should be the outro music. Um, <laughs> it says, "Tip: Unionizing your workplace will give you the bargaining ability, which will allow you to increase your pay and benefits." <laughs> and then at the bottom, it just says, "IRL loading screens." Which must be a meme page, comrade IRL loading screens. <laughs> if you're out there, good job. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, it reminds me of that like actual image, which became a meme of those, uh, the anti union flyers that I think it was Delta mm-hmm. put out. I was like a decade oh. ago, I think, at this point, that was just like, union dues can be up to $700 a year. You could buy a game console with that. And <laughs> people were like, having a union will allow you to get more money with which you can buy many video game consoles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then our next one is uh, a 
a kind of a, a play on the SAG strike and the WGA strike, which is a Taco Bell Pizza Hut. It's the combination Taco Bell Pizza Hut, except for the Taco Bell says SAG strike and the Pizza Hut says WGA strike express. And it's the drive through. So we got the combination Taco Bell Pizza Hut, SAG after WGA strike express. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's right. I like I, this I mean- image. The Express makes it a bit of a mouthful, but it the the they did a really, really great job matching the fonts. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so this next one I really liked. <laughs> this is just a tweet, but I thought it was very good. So it's a quote tweet of a uh, story from ABC7. Breaking, five LAPD officers have been taken to the hospital after being exposed to meth. <laughs> <laughs> Which... Uh, is not a thing, <laughs> nope. but so, uh, quoting them, uh, at Ken Lane just said, not all actors are on strike. Oh, you <laughs> fucking got their asses. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I saw a lot of variants on this theme about, you know, you know, we're not allowed to act cause the actors are on strike. There's a lot of those, but mm-hmm. this is, I think one of the better ones because I, I still cannot believe the cops are doing this. Not because like. I mean, look, they're cops. They're stupid. So they probably do think that being exposed to meth through your skin is a thing. But, like, at this point, I think everyone knows that the whole, like, I saw fentanyl and I had an overdose is not real. I don't know. There's probably tons of, like, hometown-ass Fox viewers who've never even seen a drug in their life who would believe anything you told them. But... Yeah, well, hey, so... Oh, yeah, okay. Now that we've we've gone (laughs) over time, I want you to explain this next one. I want you to explain this next one to us. (laughs) Okay, so we have this overtime series called Cybernetics and Labor, and in the third major installment in it, I've been going over the works of Stafford Beer, which is primarily centered around the viable systems model, which is a thing I just finally revealed after hours and hours of fucking talking about it. Um, and it's a nigh incomprehensible diagram that diagram that would make Felix Guattari blush. Uh, and <laughs> I posted it in the discord after I revealed it on the show so that anybody who wanted to look at it could have a chance to look at it and try to make sense of it because it's like part organic diagram, part, uh, electrical circuit part engineering kind of speak uh, with a bunch of labels and some enterprising memer in the discord has just put Saddam Hussein's hiding place (laughs) 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 underneath with the air vent and fan and labeled him auto poetic Saddam Hussein (laughs) (laughs) you cheeky fucks yeah (laughs) you want to know what autopoesis is become a patron and then (laughs) as I've tried to do yeah go ahead I just auto poetic Saddam Hussein is just such a funny concept. <laughs> it sounds like something uh, Marie Bookchin would say. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as I've tried to do, is put a nicer one here at the end where we have this big, chunky cat playing a chord keyboard, and it says, my brain when my boss is sharing very important information. And oh, I forgot to mention there's a space background. That's it's right. all like <laughs> like this is you're just like got uh, synthesizers played by a cat in space going on whenever your boss is like bah, 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 bah. That's that's me eighty percent of the time I'm not doing a podcast, I'll be real. That's me scrolling <laughs> Twitter, that's me, you know, in the shower, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Play us out, Keyboard Cat. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Keyboard Cat. And with that, 
We're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone for listening. If you want to help us out, share the episode. You know, write us a review somewhere. Join us in the Discord. And if you really want to help us out, we are an entirely listener-supported show. So go to patreon.com slash workstoppage is where you can get access to that cybernetics series. There's also tons of other content in there. Um, I guess also follow us in all the places. We are on Twitter at WorkStoppagePod. We're on Blue Sky at WorkStoppage. We are in a lot of places. Go to WorkStoppagePod.com for all of those links. You can follow John on Twitter at FacebookVillain. You can... Uh, and that's actually... No, no, no. That's the list. I keep... Since I've changed the list now, I'm, I don't have the, the rhythm that I used to. I got to get back into this. But follow anyway. me on all the right-wing grifter apps at Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And listen to BB Bloodis. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. kids chanting strike 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 as their school bus drove by a sag after a picket line <laughs> <laughs> hell what yeah that rocks that's awesome kids are really easy to get excited especially about cool stuff like strikes and chicken nuggets well and and, and, and giving <laughs> children permission to mm-hmm. scream about something oh, oh yeah it's their favorite thing. <laughs> oh, God help Also, you. far more appropriate than them encouraging, like, a, a fight, whereas the other right. thing that kids would chant yeah. a, around <laughs> each other.
Well, yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe it, 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 some of the stuff for coming out of the strike has been pretty spicy. Maybe they will witness a fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do kids even fight over these days anymore? Like back in my day, it was some kid stole your holographic Charizard. But now it's like Jamie took my 20,000 TikTok followers. I'm not even sure what the deal is are, with these kids. <laughs> are, are we transitioning to like a boomer drive time show? Is that the bit we're doing now? Oh, don't I am worry. 60 this has years to, old. <laughs> you don't have to worry because this part has to go at the end. We already have a cold open. Oh, we yeah. already have a cold <laughs> open. Wow. Producer so, Lena reminding us. <laughs> this will be the least listened to cold open ever because it will be at the end. It'll, be a, cold, right. it'll be a cold close. Who doesn't love a nice cold close in the morning. <laughs>